That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Incomparable, number 701. January 2024. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. You know, I've been doing this podcast since August of 2010. So 13 plus years. It's a long time. And there were two things that I dearly love that I wanted to talk about on episodes that I have not for 700 episodes. Last year, just before we hit 700, I finally did the Max Headroom episode. One of my favorite TV shows. Finally, it was on streaming. We could actually do it. And what's the holdup for this other one? The answer is, it uh, was a movie that we were waiting for it to come out on some format that was not standard death um, with a very, very extreme letterbox where you couldn't see anything. And there was no HD release for the longest time, except for like an HBO version that was not the right cut. And finally, I'm happy to report that on digital now, as we record this, and shortly to also be available on disc in ultra high def, 4K, HDR, all of all the things, is a movie that I've been wanting to talk about for 700 episodes. And finally, we get to do it. It is 1989's The Abyss, directed by James Cameron, written by a spunky little up-and-coming screenwriter named James Cameron, <laughs> who would go on to make successively the highest-grossing movie of all time. Yeah, twice. Um, <laughs> joining me to talk about The Abyss, a movie with lots of water in it, are the following wonderful people. Annette Weirstra, who is... None of us are underwater now, I guarantee it. Hi, Annette. Hello. I would just like to point out there's a submarine in this movie, and yet I watched it. Are you are you afraid of submarines? Or do you no, just not I like sub submarines? Like no, sub I hate submarine movies. Don't like submarine them. movies. All right. All right. First part of the movie is very submarine and then it's not. It anymore. is. Then and then it, it recovers. Yes. Uh Erica Ensign's also here. Hi, Erica. Hi, Jason. I'm still willing to talk about the abyss. Oh. That's good. <laughs> Little Linda Ronstadt there. Mm -hmm. The anthem of the tr the long haul trucker. Uh John Syracusa joins us. Hi, John. So raise your hand if you think that was a Russian water tentacle. <laughs> <laughs> and for, I can't believe this, his first time ever on The Incomparable, long time friend of the show. And although he and I are not married, I'm still wearing the ring. It's Todd Vaziri. <laughs> Hi, Todd. Hi. I'm so happy to finally be here. I knew this was a one-way ticket. But you know I had to talk. <laughs> You're never going back, Todd. 
you're here forever now. now. Welcome. Bet you can't do just one. (laughs) So the abyss is uh, famous for, I mean, like James Cameron's obsessed with like the sea and diving and and submersibles and all sorts of things like that. Went on to use all of this to great uh, profit in Titanic. Um, the, the, the abyss did okay, I guess in the, in the, in the theaters, um, but not spectacularly. The reviews were okay, but not great. I think there was a, a bit of a critical reappraisal when the special edition version was released, which put, uh, several, like 20 or 30 more minutes into the movie. I just want to just say here that so James Cameron cut it on, on purpose. He did the cut. It wasn't taken away from him to take it down to 140 minutes. Um, but at the request of the studio to get it to be shorter. However, the special edition is is still shorter than, among other movies, Avengers Endgame, all three <laughs> non-extended Lord of the Rings. What I'm saying is a little less than three hours no longer seems like an impossibly long runtime. But in 1989... It was impossibly long. Mm-hmm. I asked my panelists to watch the special edition. We can talk about the differences between them. The special edition adds a bunch of character stuff and adds a whole subplot that changes the ending a little bit. But regardless of which version you prefer, I'm just I'm, I'm laying my cards on the table here. This is one of my favorite movies. And every time I watch it, I kind of mm-hmm. can't believe how much of it there is. <laughs> it's a lot of movie. It, 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 it there's just, so many things just in this movie going. Time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, it was the summer of 89 and it was one of those summers of sequels for the box office where you had, um, not only an Indiana Jones movie, you had a lethal weapon movie, you had a Star Trek movie, you had a Ghostbusters movie, all sequels. And then of course that, that one comic book movie, uh, Tim Burton's Batman. So it was a crowded, uh, summer of blockbusters. So, the Abyss, which is coming off of the heels of two other sci-fi underwater epic epics movies that were <laughs> heavily marketed, uh, I think it was Leviathan and oh, Deep yeah. Star Six. So th- those <laughs> came out within the twelve months leading up to The Abyss. So, and what did The Abyss have? Did the Abyss had no big stars in it, no recognizable movie stars in it. I mean, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrotronio, amazing actors, but not exactly headliners. And so they used Jim Cameron's name as the uh, as the celebrity, you know, from the director of <laughs> Terminator and Aliens, which is a you know wise way to go. And it it did not do well. It it, it made uh, a little uh, more than Harlem Nights and made a little less than <laughs> Pet Cemetery. So in uh, 18th place in 1989. So it was rough. Ouch. And it's it's just uh, you know it I, the movie means a lot to me, uh, like a ton to me. I remember vividly seeing it in the theater and how much it affected me. And not only just from a storytelling point of view, but uh, also what I wanted to do for a living. So yeah, it means a lot to me too, Jason. Yeah. That wow. sounded an awful lot like an opening statement. John Syracuse, do you have any <laughs> opening statements or did Todd take your statement there? I think he did a good job of uh, covering the, the context of this release. Uh, during the summer or whenever, the year when this came out, uh, the two movies I would think I was most excited about were Batman, uh, mm-hmm. which I saw in the same theater that I saw The Abyss. And the second one was The Abyss. Uh, I, I remember very distinctly thinking that The Abyss was 
either the dawning of or the best example of what would surely be a whole new genre. I don't know why I was so excited about the idea of doing things deep under the sea with the sci-fi twist, but I'm like, this this will be right alongside, you know, like medieval films and, you know, space opera spaceships. Of course, we'll we'll have just, you know, underwater years space. and years of these underwater adventure movies, and we didn't. Maybe nope. it's because the Abyss didn't do that well, but I was <laughs> so excited for this movie. It seemed to me like it w- would surely be a new tentpole uh, sci-fi movie genre, the deep underwater thing. And it totally wasn't, but I loved this movie when it came out and I was blissfully unaware of how poorly it was doing at the box office. I also have to uh, offer an apology because I wanted to see this movie so badly, uh, but I had to babysit my younger brother. And so instead I took him to the movie with my friend. He was nine, year- he, he, he was nine years old and he was terrified when the crab Aww. crawls out of the dead guy's mouth Aww. and he hid in his seat and didn't look at the screen Aww. for the rest of the movie. I mean, sorry, Michael. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Michael. Wow. Wow. I guess I'm kind of an outlier then. I did not see this in the theater. I was I was too young to go by myself and movies were too expensive for for us to do as a family very often. But we rented every sci fi movie and watched it as a family. So I'm pretty sure I saw the original cut on VHS as soon as it was available for rental. And I have to admit, I thought it was kind of (laughs) ho-hum. Like I wasn't maybe I was just not having a great day or something. But I was just like, "Eh, it's it's fine. Uh, Cut to a few years later when I'm in college and I'm pretty sure my roommate had the VHS version of the special edition with like the uh, behind the scenes stuff and and the, the documentary. And I love like we watched it together and she's like, no, no, you got to watch this. And I was like, OK. And it was so good. I was like, this is the movie that I wanted the uh, the the first version of it to be. It just didn't mm. resonate with me until I think it had all of that extra stuff and was three plus hours long. <laughs> I guess that's just what I really needed. And then we watched the uh, the making of documentary probably like three or four times. And I hadn't actually seen the movie again in like maybe even since then and I was really worried about rewatching it because I was like I remember that I enjoyed it I remember that I really loved the documentary about it um mm. I haven't seen it in decades am I gonna watch it for this podcast and am I gonna come in and hate it thank god no I actually liked it even better this time mm. it is it was such a good movie it was such a fun ride I am I am very pleased I think the reason that I hadn't watched it in so long is because there wasn't a great version of the yeah. special edition to watch yeah that's so, weird it was hard yeah. to see for some reason why for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's very annoying, but but I'm glad that it exists now, and I'm extra glad that, uh, that y'all wanted to do this podcast so that I could have a chance to revisit it and make sure that yes, indeed, I still do love this movie, Spe- specifically this version of it. I would like to now go back and watch the uh, the theatrical cut just out of curiosity. I think I would enjoy it too at this point, but I still don't think I would like it as much as I uh, enjoyed the the full full ride. Annette, do you want to make an opening statement about submarines and why they're bad? <laughs> yes, I do. That's, that's, that's the only reason why I'm here. Uh, Stephen and uh, I both gasped when the movie started and it was I a submarine. Know. And we were like, Annette's watching this? <laughs> I am. He made fun of me because he's like, he assumed I wouldn't watch it because there's a submarine in it. I'm like, no, but this is an exception because it's not really. I think the thing I hate about submarine movies, to start with that, is they're usually war movies. And I just hate war movies. Hmm. Um, but what I don't even think I've seen the... Uh, not special edition of this. We have it on DVD. Hmm. Um, and I didn't see it until about 10 years later, the summer of 89. I was really into Batman. I probably saw that one twice hmm. in the theaters. But I think what got me is exactly what John says. It's it's basically a spaceship 
underwater and it's Mm -hmm. a space story. And it has like, it's so fascinating to think of all of the mysteries under the ocean and the whole concept of these creatures that are like glowing and creating water tentacles and stuff captured my imagination. And those are the things I remembered. I forgot a lot because like Eric, I haven't seen it in a long time. But um, sort of that is the thing that really caught got me excited. And uh, I really liked it. I do feel like it's very likely that the way this movie came to be is that James Cameron, who is very excited about the ocean, was talking to a friend and said, man, we don't know anything about the oceans. We don't know anything about what's down there. We know more about outer space than we know what's down there. Who knows what's who who knows what's down there? It's just as alien as going to outer space. Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> Aliens down at the seafloor. <laughs> Say. Uh, cuz it is it is a space movie in a lot of ways. Um a lot of the stri- just being in, you know, surrounded by the deep water and having little ships that you can take out and all of that. Um, I'm not going to step through the entire plot point by point because it is a three hour long movie. And <laughs> as I said earlier, there's so many things that happen in this movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, to do like to take it in, in, in big chunks and we will address sort of like the way, uh, you know, the way the movie works along the way. Um, the opening part is submarine. It's a little uh, it's a little hunt for Red Octobery in a little bit. We are on a on a. Uh, a U.S. nuclear submarine. There, they are chasing something in a in a pretty tense scene. They are chasing something. We don't know what it is. I love that the guy keeps incredulously um, increasing the number of knots that the thing is moving, <laughs> which is impossible, and it keeps going faster. And you're like, "What is going on?" And then, of course, they smash into an undersea cliff. And there's that one scene where the guys are fleeing from the wall of water and they almost get the little uh, oh. hatch closed and one then it blows open. Shots. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, and later in the movie, you're like, oh, man, because when they finally get to the stuff, it's like, oh, man, those guys might have survived if they had closed that door. But they that's didn't why this close movie was OK for an epic is the sub dies immediately. Yes, that's right. She's like, I win. One point for Annette, everybody. Done and done. Yeah, exactly. Like, And by the way, that's who cares about that sub? That sub commander. <laughs> I I give him a poor performance rating. <laughs> like so does the he's Navy. a submarine commander. You, how did he get this job of being so incredibly careless and impulsive? Yes, you see a weird thing in the water. Let's go chase it through a narrow <laughs> canyon in the ocean, <laughs> despite the fact that it's going way too fast and we don't know what it is. And oh, what a surprise! We hit a wall. Yeah, maybe he also had high pressure nervous syndrome. Right? We just didn't know <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. It's oh, it's yeah. possible. The shakes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's possible. Yeah, but no, I, I did. Uh, every time I watch that, especially the scene with the water filling up that thing, like like how fast the water fills the room, I always think they had to have those people in a tank that yeah. they flooded with water really fast. Yep. And yeah, I know it's a controlled environment and it's a set and all, but like, it's terrifying, right? It's still <laughs> how fast the water fills that room. So we're talking about the torpedo bay, those two guys in the, in the, uh, in the submarine, right? Yeah. Cause as the thing is tilting down, the water starts to come in and then within two seconds, the water has filled that room so that they can no longer stand. Yeah. And I think that's the same, the same two crewmen who those tanks blow right behind them. Um, so that shot, the shot of the water rising and the two guys who just barely almost get that door shut, the uh, the hatch shut, that's some really beautiful movie magic. The water uh, flooding the set is a is an elaborate miniature. 
Uh, <laughs> and that is a, in the shot where it's just the water flooding, uh, I'm pretty sure that's just the, the, the raw footage. But the two fellas who are just about to escape from the hatch, um, that footage is being projected, uh, rear projected on a screen a few feet behind them. And just as they were about to close it, they start splashing some water back there. So oh, that is, so good. they are uh, completely safe. And uh, some mm, wow. some of them, incredible movie magic. I mean, pretty much every single technique known to man was used in the abyss uh, to create this stuff. This scene is, is I think the movies do really effectively well. This is, this is the disaster. And, and, and. It's you are on board with people who aren't going to make it. Nobody from the sub is going to make it. And and you get that moment where they were like, oh, maybe they'll know. And then um, another moment that John was criticizing the commander. And yeah, he, he's doing a bad job here. He, he loses a nuclear <laughs> sub. It's a bad. Idea. But there is a moment where they're distracted by this thing that's going impossible speeds, right? They're distracted. I'll give it them at least this. And then they realize that they're going to they're going to smash in and then and there's that moment where he basically says we're we're going down and he's got to launch the buoy. And then as they're going and he knows it's the end, the captain has this look that is very clearly like, "Welp." Yep. <laughs> and he holds his breath. Drink he, it in. <laughs> He this takes is the a end. big breath and kind of holds oh. it just before the shot of the nose hitting the side. <laughs> like, boy, he's, I mean, maybe he's a bad captain, but but he knew exactly when they were <laughs> yeah. about to hit. No, and that's <laughs> in tune with his sub. Oh, and that's yeah. dark. That's really dark. And, and that's how the movie starts is like, he knows that they're all dead. And, and it is and one I of didn't. those fundamental terrors of submarines, right? Is... Mm-hmm. You're surrounded, and and of course, the rest of the movie we're going to have our all our characters surrounded by the water too, right? So it's like death is right outside, and so the movie is also setting up the stakes right here, which is mm-hmm. just it's in in a moment there could be a mistake that gets made and it kills everybody. Having not happens. seen it in so long, I did not remember that that is what happened to the sub. So it came as a little bit of a shock to me that, oh, my gosh, OK, like I get it. Yes, the sub is going down. I still had hope into the next section that maybe some of those people would have lived. And no, they did not. So you're right. The movie was telling me right ahead, like at the beginning, this is what kind of movie it is. You should be tense. And then, yes, I ended up being very tense. Maybe in a special, special edition, they'll, they'll make it. <laughs> well, in this prologue. It also reminds me the many times that I've seen it that this is firmly a Cold War movie. This yeah. it mm-hmm. lives the Russians, in the yeah. the Russians are the enemy. <laughs> they're their constant fear of nuclear war, and even more so in the special edition relative to the theatrical. Right. I mean, it's play, it's touched upon in the theatrical, but it is made extremely uh, apparent in the uh, special edition. It was the 80s. It was mandatory. Exactly. This is actually the year before the hunt for Red October, which is also kind of funny yeah. to think of it that way. But it's that it was definitely giving me those vibes. And it is it is a Cold War story. It, 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 it's got the hunt for Red October vibes. And also the plot has some 2010 vibes. Um, but that's OK. <laughs> aliens just don't want us to kill us ourselves, kill each other. Right. That's yeah, what the aliens uh, are. Dramatic I love that scenes take place with all mm-hmm. caps letters going on a computer In, screen. I know. Right. <laughs> right. All these worlds are yours, uh, except for Bud. Uh, something like that. So this whole segment is then followed by, I mean, we meet, we meet our characters who are on this experimental drilling platform that's supposed to be drilling for oil at the bottom of the earth's surface. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's Bud who is at Harris, who's running the platform and Lindsay, his 
estranged and soon to be ex-wife who designed it for Benthic Petroleum. Uh, she comes down before a big storm hits the ship that's floating on the surface. Chris Elliott is there. Okay. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Forgot that too. Just one of those guys who's up there. I was like, hey, it's Chris Elliott. I, I, I'm just shocked at how many. Every time I rewatch this, they're like, they gave him how many lines? Yeah, yeah. He's he's got <laughs> a lot of lines up there. there there's mm-hmm. a lot going on. Ken Jenkins from Scrubs is up there too. Um, they're they're up up topside. So anyway, but the premise is there's a group of people, and when we meet them, especially in the special edition, we get the extended uh, scene where uh, they're they're doing the big driving the big thing and moving the, the, the thing around and, and, uh, and singing the trucker song. It's Willin, uh, Linda Ronstadt version. And like, it is, these are oil workers. These are tough people. They are down on the, they're salt of the earth and they're down on the bottom of the ocean floor. And then the way the plot kicks in is that they are commandeered by the U S government in order to, rapidly go they're the only ones who have the technology to rapidly go to the location where the sub has crashed because it's a nuclear sub so there's a reactor and there's lots and lots and lots of nuclear warheads and they're concerned that there's russian activity in the area as well so at at that point the the first segment of the movie is really this sub recovery movie and it goes on long enough that i i just thought to myself you know there's probably a version you could do of this movie that would still be two hours long that doesn't have aliens in it at all. Yeah. And it would be pretty tense and it would be pretty good. The aliens add another <laughs> level. But like in this first segment, not only do you get the horror of the destroyed submarine, but then the horror of being the people who have to investigate the destroyed submarine and find the bodies and keep like hoping against hope that you're going to tap with a metal thing on one of those doors and it's not going to be flooded so that maybe there are people behind it. And like, uh, and, and just, and then there's panic, including an alien that's there that panics the one guy into hyperventilating. Mm-hmm. Like it's tense as they're all, you know, in the sub or hovering outside. And this is also where we get another hint that you might've forgotten what they were chasing in that first scene. But here there are mysterious lights and mysterious creatures going on around the crash sub, but it's just super tense. I was, I, this is the part of the movie that I don't have as clear a memory of. And I'm always reminded of, of how great and tense it is. Cause think about cave divers and things like that, right? They are going so far into the submarine in just their diving equipment with a ticking clock of like, we've only got 12 minutes before we have to turn around. Huh. Well, one of the things I love about everything that leads up to when disaster strikes, when the crane uh, comes down mm-hmm. and nearly hits them. One of the things that is uh, that Cameron definitely takes his time with this section and setting up the geography of deep core and the camaraderie of mm-hmm. of the crew. Yeah. And that's something you get a lot more of in the special edition. Uh, the theatrical uh, hints at it, and it comes through in the performances. It comes through. I mean, clearly, these actors, with all of the training that they had to do and mm-hmm. all the time they spent um, before even a single frame of film was shot, um, their, uh, their camaraderie really comes through in this these are early scenes not just how they connect with each other but their body language walking around or even doing their job on deep core it really feels like these people have been there for a long time and they know exactly what they're doing um 
and and not only the cam- not only how they move around but how the how confidently the camera glides around with them in these extremely cramped corridors uh those little bulbous <laughs> windows the portholes um really helps set the stage and it every every minute that it, that it, Cameron spends on this helps later when all hell breaks loose um when their options are way limited uh, I absolutely love this stuff and you know cards on the table I you know special edition theatrical I might be comparing on them a lot I definitely prefer the theatrical especially for a first timer but one of the great things about the special edition is that it it uh it it allows that that section to breathe a little bit more and you get to see a little bit more of them before mm-hmm. all hell breaks loose that's that's interesting. Um, I, I can't compare them, but I, I did really enjoy the way that uh, sort of the whole setting was dribbled out to me in pieces. Like I did not realize that it was an oil rig at first. I was just like, OK, they're, they're doing something under the water. Is this a research station? There's, you know, a big ship up, up above. Is it military? OK, no, it's not military because the military is there and they're saying they want to take it over. OK, now they're calling down and, oh, they don't think that the people under the, the water are going to be happy about this. Why not? What are they doing? And then the starting with a song and everybody singing along and like that just uh, that made me it really sold the camaraderie the way that you said Mm -hmm. and also then like that's when you find out oh they're 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 drillers it's an oil rig like every little piece of information was was given with a few moments or scenes or lines or something in between so that i could sort of like understand and grasp on to exactly what was happening while it was being cushioned by the character (laughs) development i guess and if I had less time for that, I think maybe it would have I would have struggled a little bit more with uh, with feeling oriented in that uh, that deep sea location. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies and live TV for just twenty five dollars a month. You can even try it for free with their seven day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their 7-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. I was the opposite. You know, Jason, you said you liked that part and you would could have that whole movie without the aliens. And I was like, but could we like really cut that sub part down a lot? This is on brand, well, perhaps. I mean, but I mean, because like, the the, then the so crane long. comes down and they're put in jeopardy yeah, there, right? There's, there's a whole exactly. bunch of other jeopardy that follows. I'm not saying just the sub movie. I'm saying but, the, but the, I there's feel so like much in the movie. There's so many points of jeopardy. And because it is because I love the fact that water is so terrifying in this movie and i feel like it's scarier than space because it flows in you know like space does too why is water so much more <laughs> terrifying out into space but anyway. right yeah, yeah so it's like it's so scary but it's like there's so many points where that tension is built and i do love the character development and that all those pieces but i was like it felt like it took a really really long time to get to the part that i was really excited about which is like 
when are we going to start seeing more evidence of these underwater creatures? Because right. I don't think they're aliens. I think they're just underwater creatures. Yes, they are. That exists. I, I, well, the special <laughs> edition has one opinion, but I'm with Todd in that I vastly prefer the theatrical one. And although I, there's nothing I dislike about the extended character scenes that they put in here, uh, if you go and watch the theatrical and compare it to this one, it is an excellent example of if someone told you you had to cut this down, how would you cut it down but preserve all the mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. things? Oh, and sure. again, I'm not saying the things they cut were bad. They were fine. But they cut, you know, or James Cameron cut exactly the right things because I don't think he lost anything in terms of make this character point, establish yep. this fact, do like everything was done. It just got tightened up. Right. And I, and, and I don't mind the length in this part. My complaints about the special edition are not about the early part that it is extended. I have no problem with longer movies, but I do think the tighter version of this in the theatrical is an excellent example of how to edit out for time while preserving every single good thing about it. Because I, you know, hmm. I, with the exception of the song, I suppose, but again, you know, uh, murder your darlings. It's like, we've got to mm -hmm. essentially <laughs> lose the most of the song scene, but everything else is in there. And it, right down to the back of, I was trying to remember when I was watching and I'm like, when does Ed Harris get real mad and throw his ring in the toilet? Because I know he's going to get mad and throw his ring in the toilet. And after uh, the scene in the theatrical that they, they cut to him getting the ring, I'm like, ah, now he's at it. It's maximum madness. But the special edition had one more scene. Yep. And I'm like, see, James Cameron knew that he is sufficiently mad to throw his ring in the toilet there. So you can cut there and cut out the whole yeah. second. And I, and I watched that second scene, you know, eagle eyes and saying, is there anything in this second scene that you had to have to establish that he's angrier that you need later? And the answer was no. Not that it was a bad mm. scene. It was a good scene. More character development, more time with them. But if you have to cut, that was one that could go. So The one nice thing about that extra scene is that they do, they literally point out the ring. It's like, why are you still wearing that? And he's like, I don't know. I mean, no, that's, that's not in the theatrical. I think no, that, that, that line that is in the theatrical. Bit. No, that's all gone. And, I, and, and then, because in the theatrical, it cuts from him hitting his head on the uh on the pipe kind of like beating himself up and i think it cuts directly to the toilet scene <laughs> so <laughs> he throws it in so here's the thing I mean, cameron writer director obviously supervised the the edit to get it down to the theatrical length yeah um so he knows exactly where to cut but also i would say one of the things that's amazing about this movie is i love how efficient it is and how every Every scene has a point and he knows the things he can get away with cutting, but every scene has a point. And sometimes I find it exhausting when there's nothing in a movie that isn't necessary because like, <laughs> so you you're like, oh, hey, it's that guy. He seems random. Well, you know, he's not because otherwise he mm -hmm. wouldn't be in the movie. But here, ha since I've seen this movie so many times now, every line of dialogue, I'm like, that line of dialogue is there because it's setting up this thing that happens two hours later. And this line of dialogue is there because we need to know this about this character because, and as Erica said, like it's incredibly efficient and very carefully structured. So you yeah. know everything you need to know for every yeah. other point in the movie. And it's artfully done. I think you, I mean, I don't know because it's been a while since I saw it for the first time, but like, I think when you're watching it as a babe in the woods, it feels more natural, but as as somebody who's seen it a bunch of times, you can watch it and go, ah, oh, that sets this up. This sets this up. <laughs> like it, you, you are, he is building a pyramid of things you need to know about who the characters are and what their jobs are and what we need to know about the setting so that everything that comes later is properly set up. And then for him to do that and then pull things out of it and still have it make sense. 
that's a great trick. But like, I yeah. feel like as a screenwriter, he is so good at doing that. He is he is so good at showing you and sometimes telling you what's going to happen, almost like in a heist film where you 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 show everybody the plan and the inadequacies of the plan or the things they're going to get right or wrong or whatever. And then the whole rest of the movie is the things going right or wrong and then they have to adapt. What he does here is so often is there's a lot of setup and payoff, just like Back to the Future, just like in Titanic, where in mm-hmm. the in the first you know act of the movie, he basically with that computer simulation in the present day, he shows you what's going to happen. It's not like he's setting it up so that like, ah, guess what happens later? And it only happens in the third act. He tells you everything that's going to happen so that when uh, the physicality of the Titanic sinking happens, you have a good semblance of what's going to happen. He does that a lot in here in the abyss as well. A little bit of setup, a little bit of payoff. And I think it goes a long way. And when he was cutting to get, uh, down to his to the appropriate theatrical uh, running time, um, he had to take the t- take these big swings. You don't want to, which what happens so often with movies, and we've all seen them, where the movie just doesn't get a good rhythm going, or scenes kind of start in the middle or end a little bit abruptly. It's because they tried to go in in every sequence and said, "How can we trim this down? How can we trim this down? How can we trim this down?" As opposed to Cameron, who's like, all right, I guess I got to take out this entire subplot or I have to take out this entire thread or I got to take he he takes big, big swaths of it out so that uh, he's hoping that the what, what's remaining will propel the story, will propel the audience and, and make it all work. And and I think that's he's so good at that. And yeah, it's on display well, here. One of the things I loved about this movie uh, is what I love about a lot of the sort of uh, movies that other people tend not to like, and I do, or at least that aren't popular is that like all good directors, he assumes the audience is smart. And so uh, rather than uh, having a line in a scene that is important for you to know, and you have to know it uh, two scenes later, he'll do it an hour later, right? Mm-hmm. Because he'll assume that you yeah. remember when they said that an hour ago, and that is a risk. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a, a lot of movies that are uh, more broadly aimed, let's say, they have to they put those things closer together, or they make them more explicit, or they have or they people do a do, flashback, yeah, or they have mm-hmm. people do as you know, Bob's like closer mm-hmm. together, just not not they're still doing the same thing, but they're just like I don't want to make someone remember this for ninety minutes. They're gonna forget. Right. Or it's flashback in black and white. Hey, remember yeah. earlier in the movie when this <laughs> happened? It's such a key point that we're going to have to remind them, even if we do it, if it's an hour later, let's remind them one more time. It doesn't have to be as clunky as a flashback, have someone say it or whatever. And this movie absolutely refuses to do that. I know this is much later in the movie, but I thought about this when I was watching it uh, again uh, for the podcast, uh, when there's the bomb diffusing scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the I don't think it's restraint because I think it was just natural for him to do this, but like... If you saw that bomb diffusing scene, and we have seen that bomb diffusing scene in many other movies... Mm-hmm someone somewhere would say think to themselves or have an out loud thing to let the audience know that he can't tell what color things are we know he can't tell what color it's a movie we see the picture it's clear that he can't tell what color things are like that's the joke but no one voices it and he has the confidence not that it's that much confidence but i'm so annoyed when people don't just like we get it you don't have to say have him think to himself oh geez what am i gonna do now or type on his little pad can't see color no (laughs) none of that happens right and just 
That, that is uh, the whole rest of the movie is like that. The, the, the reason it's not jarring to like the, uh, oh, everything connects up or whatever is because during all those scenes when they're establishing something, establishing a fact that will be important later or whatever, it's not it's done in a naturalistic way that just seems like it's a com- like it fits in. It doesn't seem like, ah, oh, it doesn't jump out at you and say they're telling me a thing that's going to be a setup. It does a really good job of just saying this is casual conversation. This is. There is some, as you know, bobbing, but it's very well disguised, right? Because it's like someone on the on the crew knows something that other people don't, and he's explaining to them, and then in turn explaining to the audience. Very nicely done, very smooth and casual. He makes it look easy, but then also assumes the audience has a good enough memory, and is and is paying. He assumes the audience is paying attention. That's the other thing great directors do: assume the yeah, audience yep. is paying attention to every scene, and hopefully they are because it's dynamically shot and interesting, and it's got everyone's attention. Uh, and he has the confidence to just go with that. That reminds me of the scene when they're going down um, with Lindsay to the uh, undersea base and they have to explain to us what that uh, syndrome is or whatever. I don't remember the acronym. Um, and they they do it in such a funny way because like it's so explainy to have to tell us that, oh, the symptoms are X, Y and Z. Your hands are going to start shaking. You're going to start having hallucinations. And they do it in a way that is like. She says it and they're like, yeah, 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 blah, blah, yeah. blah. And they make fun of it. So they're sort of like acknowledging that. They, Everybody they, they knows have that to, They have to say it. Yeah. We know it. We have to explain this to you, the audience, but we're going to do it in a way that is sort of like making fun of this situation in a way that was felt. And it forms her character. Normal. But it ties yeah. into the casual sexism of the 80s. That's pervades oh, yeah. this movie. And there's, that <laughs> oh, does yes. pervade this, this movie. Oh, the misogyny and the sexism that's in this. But the two women <laughs> yeah. characters, though. I, I was going to say the um, Bud taking his ring off and throwing it in the toilet and then picking it up out of the toilet so that he's got a blue hand for most of the movie after that. Mm-hmm. Um, even that. There's the scene later where he puts his hand in the door and hits his ring, mm-hmm. and that's what keeps the door open. Like yeah, everything has a a yeah. a link, a purpose. It's like a jigsaw to it. puzzle. Mm-hmm. He does. He does kiss the ring, but at least he doesn't say, "Boy, I'm glad I didn't." I went and got that <laughs> ring. We get it. We can tell. The mini setup and payoff for that little bit is that he couldn't help his his crewmates. Right, and that other door, door and, and he was telling them to cut the, yes. the, the power line or whatever. The two hydraulics. And then, the hydraulics, and, then yeah. and then he has to, he's in the exact same situation. You stick his hand in there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys have ever watched The Abyss with a first timer. There's a few scream out loud moments, <laughs> and that is one of them. I I was I showed this to my kids a while back, and that is at when he sticks his hand in there and that sound mm-hmm. effect of the of the ring getting caught mm-hmm. in the elevator or in the uh, doors, it shrieks and the thing shrieks. I, yel- I yelped myself and i'd seen it before but it was so long ago i'd forgotten so i i felt kind of like a first timer i wanted to see like the uh whoever's in charge of props saying we need a ring that can plausibly stop a door <laughs> that is the beefiest wedding ring you've yeah. ever seen the it uh, seems and, fitting for his character and it's also mm-hmm. a character moment i mean that's one of the things that's actually very brilliant about this movie is that a lot of these things are plot points that are also character points and mm-hmm. i think that's interesting like we we get talk about the shorthand of some of these characters who are meeting here like hippie his name alone right we've got some yep. ideas but here are certain things that he says you know everything is a conspiracy and all of that yeah. but like also in a moment that it informs a lot about every character in the movie is when uh bud expresses his dislike for Lindsay when we don't know 
It's one of the first, one of the, what the word bitch is used twice in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's misogyny folks. Um, but hippie says, guess you shouldn't have married her then. And like, yes, that is a download that Lindsay is his, is his wife or a strange wife or ex-wife or whatever. We don't know yet, but it also like it's banter. It, it, we understand Bud better. We understand their relationship better. And we understand who Hippie is a little bit better. <laughs> it's very artfully done. And there are lots of mm -hmm. lines of dialogue among all of the Deep Core crew because it's not a Star Trek movie. We don't have, you know, decades of history with these people. And we need to know who they are, or at least who some of them are, because they matter in the rest of the movie. And it's much richer knowing who they are. And just, yeah, the efficiency that the, the movie has to move the plot along while also letting you learn who these people are in this first segment is, uh, it's it's good. It's really well and done. speaking of Lindsay, she's such a great character that the movie mostly tries to serve well. Like the, the movie lets her be a, a great character modified by the, uh, not particularly motivated uh, sexism and negative opinions of the entire crew about her, uh, which is kind of a shame because they're so close to doing a great job. Her introduction is one of my favorite shots in the movie with the boots on the ground coming off of the yes. helicopter and then mm -hmm. her her feet coming down with the, the heels. Just like, again, that, that scene I think is well executed in that it's not like, here's the sexy lady. It's this person. One of these things is not like the other, right? <laughs> and the camera does mm -hmm. not move. It just stays there. She's the boots, 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 heels, right? But then you very quickly learn that, you know, who this character is and what she's all about. And I think, she, you know, she does a great job in the role and I love the character, which makes the one or two instances of everyone being, you know, pointlessly misogynistic towards <laughs> her just slightly off-putting. I'm not really sure her relationship with Bud is going to work out. I'm yeah. going to take issue with that, though, because I'm not entirely sure it's pointlessly misogynistic because I being a woman in a male dominated mm -hmm. field, mm -hmm. that's that's what it was like. And that's what it still is like, unfortunately, for a lot of women. I mean, Annette can speak to this. She used to work in, in water. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's it's an accurate portrayal. But like, but mm -hmm. I think the movie wants us to like Bud more than I think we should. That's basically what it comes down to. And also the crew uh -huh. backing her, like the the person who drives with the cowboy hat, putting her finger in her mouth when oh lindsay uh why do you hate lindsay what do you like because she's you're also a woman in a, in a man's world having to be tough like it's just but it's like i hate oh, to break it to you john but that happens a lot too yeah. mm -hmm. i think she's perceived as being management and yeah, that she's also of her kind company. of a sellout yeah she's yeah she's, but like everything is like this she's tough as nails and she's hard on them or whatever and it's like yeah, no, I don't know. Like, I, I, I agree that all this happens, but I think the movie wants us to be more okay with it than I am, right? And Especially she's with respect earthy, to Bud. And she's not a space or space, sorry, underwater trucker like the rest of them, right? She's not, <laughs> she's not earthy like that. She's, she's corporate. She's basically with the suits. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't love it. And I think it's interesting how she's portrayed because they want to, like, I understand what's going on here, right? They want this to be a journey. They want to put Bud and Lindsay apart mm -hmm. and then bring them together. Like, I get it. I get it. But it's one of those things. And this is not, of all James Cameron's movies, I mean, like, uh, yeah, there's sexism here. I don't love it. There are many, many worse examples of this in his in his films, this is not it. Uh, there, you know, but, but there are the, those moments that I still roll my eyes. At, yeah, it's, it's not so much the sexism; it's the how I think the movie wants me to feel about it. And the movie, for yeah. the most part, does is not on board with it, and it's just it's there because it's there yeah. in real life. But but they want there to be eventually by the end of the movie a reconciliation between Bud and her. And I'm still looking a little bit askance at Bud <laughs> by the end of the movie. I mean, me too. But like that's me in like all media. So I guess for me, it's such background <laughs> radiation that I don't even notice it in this movie. Yeah. 
I mean, I can tell you that I didn't notice it at all when I saw it in 1989. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. subsequent viewings have made that pop out a little bit more. <laughs> I don't think I cared if they got together in the end, though, because of it. I'm like, OK, cool. You guys want to get together and be a couple again. Fine. But I was not invested in that this romance in the I, movie I, th- at I thought all. they had chemistry. I thought the characters they did. and the actors had chemistry in the movie. They did. And I'm like. I, I buy that they would get back together and they have this past and they have some nice moments. But I was like, I was not super invested in whether or not they ended up together or not. I think Ed Harris is so likable that I like mm-hmm. the, the actor goes a long way towards me, uh, towards my sympathy for Bud, because I feel like in the end, he like he does care about her and he's trying to do the right thing. And for the most part, his character, I mean, his character has has some flaws especially in the beginning they try to make him look gruff but he is a good boss he yeah. is a friend yes. to all the people on the rig he makes wise decisions unlike the sub commander like he is a good hero for this movie in terms of you know doing a good job in a difficult situation in a sympathetic way and the actor is just playing charismatic and that goes a long mm-hmm. way towards carrying his character well i also think that it's, it's something that i definitely did not pick up on when i saw it back in 89 that the, the more i see it as an adult the way that both Bud and Lindsay um, lead is with a lot of compassion. There's a there's a compassion theme in this movie where there's it's made explicit in one point when Coffee yells at one of their crew members to do mm-hmm. something, and Bud just goes, "Hey, well, just chill out, okay?" And then he just kind of calmly goes over to the crew member and tells them to do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, "Yeah, sure." But n- notice how many times both Bud and Lindsay like they put their hands on on other people's cheeks and other on their heads and they they give them eye contact they 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 affirm their their humanity i i think that would i think how many times does that happen in these types of movies where there's a boss and a and a, and a team a supportive person mm-hmm. right yeah, right and like the very the very opening scenes where they establish the characters is a little bit more sort of cliche 80s here's the all darky crew but very quickly they settle into no yeah. these are all good humans trying to do a difficult job and they do all the characters care about each other yep. enough to support each other and it's it's very like which is i i think it is actually a contrast with the very beginning is like this is just going to be one of those 80 movies and here's the funny guy who mm-hmm. thinks this and here's the tough guy and here's this and even when we get to uh Sh- mr shaky hands the the marine or whatever, they even his character which is a testament to his actor is mildly sympathetic in that you realize this is not a character flaw this is a thing that's happening to him and he's in a difficult situation and he loses it. But even the people around him, all the jarheads aren't like gung ho with him and they get dispatched one by one. They eventually, yes. for the most part, come around to the idea yeah. that <laughs> I need to join with the oil rig crew and stop this guy because he's gone off the deep end. It's unlike Die Hard, which, by the way, I wanted to mention because <laughs> it came out the year before. And Ed Harris, uh, there are a couple scenes with with Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio where I was like, Oh, it's John McClane and Holly, because <laughs> um, it's a similar like she's huh. she's off she's off with the suit on dates and like they're separated and he's like he isn't happy with it and she's like doing her career. There's definitely an underpinning of this guy feels like he's not done with his relationship, but the woman who is a professional and and more kind of upwardly mobile than him has kind of gone off on. It's very similar. I've never really thought about it before, but I'm like, oh, I am getting a little John McClane vibe here now. You know, at no point does Bud go, you know, now I have a machine gun, but uh, still there's a <laughs> little God. there's a little of that vibe in here which i think is interesting sociologically maybe that the that it's the um that the woman in the in the marriage is 
um, more white collar and kind of leaving her more blue collar partner behind i don't know it's yeah it's but she, she's also i mean she's much more uh she's much more impressive than holly in that like she designed this whole station she oh, yeah. has hero she has the, her- she's she's a real the character. hero in the sub chase mm-hmm. it's her idea to do the the drowning rescue which is one of the greatest scenes in this movie mm-hmm. that's ellis, all her ellis tells me right? that that uh that holly's great at closing deals but anyway that's a yeah. different movie <laughs> but, um, and, and also, show and, and the this, watch i know i keep jumping around but like in, in the in the sub drowning scene then she has to manage uh, her husband's emotions surrounding yeah. this. Mm-hmm. So it's her idea. And then she has to essentially help him execute it because he's losing it because he, obviously yeah. he doesn't want her to he die. So to not only does she come up with the idea, but she, she like, uh, you know, manages the entire thing, coaxes him into doing it. And then only at the very last moment when she's about to drown, to she's around. afraid and or whatever. But like, she, she has a lot of important hero moments in yes. this movie that Holly doesn't mm-hmm. get. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to move to the next bit, which is the crane descent. the The storm is is um is is on the Benthic Explorer, and the crane. There's a person in the crane going like, ee! and the crane collapses, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, it's coming down to you." And we get this great sequence where the pings are happening faster and faster, and they are battening down the hatches and they are deeply concerned that they're going to get smashed by this crane and then the great moment where the crane lands near them but not on them and they're like oh what a relief and the crane of course goes over the edge and begins to pull them toward the abyss that's like Uh, an indiana jones moment i'm tensing up just Mm -hmm. thinking about it and, Mm -hmm. and then even though they don't get pulled over the abyss they have enormous damage is done to the rig so we get our sort of next set of action disaster moments where there's water and sparks and fire and more water just like everywhere and people are trying to to close again close hatches and you're like no those guys those guys in the sub couldn't close the hatches but these guys uh, mostly close the hatches and well, that's we, a relief we lose a few people mostly but we do yeah. lose a few people well because the hatches close Another one of those shriek moments is when that door blows off and hits the medic. <gasps> oh, yes. Oh, I, I yelped shout. there, too. Yeah. It's so stressful. That, that whole scene with the, with the crane coming down, um, difficult to make sure the geometry, uh, the geography, rather, is clear to the audience. And they pretty much do it without anybody yelling, the crane's going to fall right on us. Where is the crane? Can you see it? They avoid that so well, but like they get so much mileage out of seeing the little, the, the umbilical oh, coil. Slowly and, landing. And, yeah, and on, I'm not oh. even sure if they, I'm not even sure if at any point they voice the idea that the crane is going to land on them. But you know no, everyone in, in the thing knows that. That's why they're staring out the window and that's why you get the relief of, of you know, and then it goes This is the, the dividends being paid off when, with all the setup that he did of uh, uh, the audience always understands what's going on in this movie and in all of Jim Cameron's movies. That's why his action scenes are just so amazing. He sets up a uh, the 180 degree line. He sets up wh- where the moon pool is and where the, the uh, command module mm-hmm. is. When they're looking out that window and they see the slack of the umbilical <sighs> 
collecting right in front of them. Um, that just sets up the geography and you get it instantly. And when that crane hits there, you immediately know, oh, okay, they're safe. And then, of course, it, it tumbles afterwards. That's but the it, mastery. But it also of sets Cameron. up that umbilical is like what you know immediately when it falls off into the abyss that they're tied to it, right? So yeah. yep, yep. set that up too. Just just like uh, John McClane with his that that uh, the wheel of the of the fire hose. See, mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's the same. It's not same the thing. same movie at all. It's not John, John McClane the crane. John John McCrane. Yeah, yeah. He throws himself off into the abyss. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, this is so so. You get some. I mean, there's some disaster movie antecedents here too, right? Where it's like underwater. Uh, disaster, but that this is only one little see, like some other movie, this might be the whole thing, but it's not. It's just one little part of this movie. We we lose some people. There's the scene of the guys that they find after it's all over, like floating the guy floating in his bunk, and they're like, oh no. Um, but uh, they do survive it, but they're in this very difficult position now of like they're damaged. What are they going to do? And of course, amidst all this, we get our other important subplot, which is Michael Bean, who is a very a nice time traveler who fell in love with Sarah Connor and the Terminator. Mm-hmm. But here he's got a mustache and high pressure <laughs> nervous you know syndrome or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And he is going crazy. Uh, and becoming, he, I forget, and, did he already get the orders at this point? Because he had a legit orders, which was, Hey, go that's, that's actually, that's, that's why they got screwed by the umbilical. That's another, another great he's cut off they didn't, from the did, orders now. Yeah. They didn't like, they do such a good job in justifying everything in yeah. this movie. Why are this, why is the military here? Oh, don't they have their own things? They do actually voice this. And he says, yeah, but they can't get here fast enough. There's a storm coming. We need to do this now. Russian subs are here. Why do they, why does this disaster happen? It wouldn't have happened. They were going to disconnect when the thruster, you know, went bad or whatever, but they, they couldn't because they had to wait two hours because Michael Bean took the sub to get the thing because the military ordered him to get it. like and, everything and is just when the so sub well is is descending in the moon pool. You see you have Bud saying we need the right. sub to <laughs> yeah. unhook the umbilical yeah. because of the hurricane coming. He'll be he's like it'll be back. It'll be fine. It'll only be two hours like, upstairs like in two hours. This storm will be destroying us like uh, oh, of course uh, hurricanes should have women's names. Anyway. Michael Bean is going to uh-huh. do that because it's his order right like it's i think it's interesting this character john i think alluded to this earlier like he's the villain if there's a villain in this movie he's clearly the villain except i mean he's a jerk coffee's a jerk from the beginning but he's a jerk who's got orders that are driving him to do things that cause lots of terrible things to happen and he becomes increasingly paranoid because of the high pressure nervous syndrome so on some on some levels his only real crime that him as a human being is guilty of is being kind of a jerk but like Mm -hmm. everything gets amplified the orders Mm -hmm. he's given i mean he's like hal 9000 a little bit sorry 2010 (laughs) reference again right where he's giving conflicting orders he's been given some bad orders and now he's losing it and this is what Mm -hmm. happens it's yeah and he's he's at the at least at this point in the film he's not completely irrational no like it happens pretty fast and and to john's point from earlier he is like he's a person he is a character he actually he doesn't flat out apologize afterwards exactly but he does say you know i was under orders i had to do it and they make a point of saying that he's turned off communications as he's leaving so there's no we don't even know if coffee knows that they need to unhook the umbilical right. and that they need that sub yeah, for it because he's turned off communication. Right. Yeah. yeah they're mm-hmm. in the sub. It's true. I think there's so much to like about all the actors in this movie, but, and to admire and laud them. But my, as I get older, the Michael Bean performance 
there's so many different ways he could have done this role. Mm-hmm. And I think he does it in the most human way possible. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever, you know, even though he's got a mustache here and he didn't he have it in all the other Cameron, he does not <laughs> twirl it. Um, and particularly the, how he uh, is trying to deal with his HPME and he, that he, he, that, that awful shot, another, you know, mm, gasp yeah. in the th- audience of tilting uh, the camera craning down and you see him cutting himself oh, and God. you see him, he's trying to mm-hmm. deal with this and he, you know, he should, yeah, it, it's a complicated character and I think he brings a lot of humanity to it. Yeah. And and like that is his one, his one evil character, not evil, but his one sort of moral failing or I don't know, whatever his, his character flaw is that he can't bring himself. He knows immediately that he's got the pressure sickness before they even get out of the little yes. compression thing. He knows mm-hmm. and he hides it because yeah. of pride. Essentially that's, that, that is his, Th- that's the original sin. True, yes. And it is pride, <laughs> but it's also like I, I notice how few lines the other soldiers really have until we get Ensign Monk, who sort of, you know, takes over and becomes the good guy because he's injured and, and is helping them out. But like the the fact that his sort of second in command just so quickly and easily goes along with him and ties the, the headband around his head. He's like, mm-hmm. he's got the Rambo <laughs> yeah. thing going on. It's like, I feel like. Maybe I just want to cut him some slack because he's Kyle Reese and he will always be Kyle mm-hmm. Reese to me. But Same. I feel like also he recognizes that maybe having the one of the rest of these jarheads in charge is not the smartest way to go. And he lets that take over as his paranoia right. um, goes too far. Maybe that's headcanon, but I that's my headcanon. Like his little, his little buddy looked up to him and he wanted to be, his pride is making him be macho for him. And yeah, we don't want the Uzi guy to be in charge or whatever. But, <laughs> right. But, yeah. but, but part of that is because he's, he's the ranking officer he's in charge of all of them so yeah you don't want to promote the guy who is lower ranking less experienced to be in charge of the mission that's why he feels like i have to complete this mission yeah i know i've got the handshakes but it's my job to do it um this so so after everything is sort of uh settled after the crane pulls them and causes all this damage and kills people and all of that we end up with the i mean movie history famous scene where a column of water, a little water, <clears throat> excuse me, a little water tentacle, um, wins its way through the ch- ship and checks in on Lindsay and does a little Lindsay impression and does a little uh, Bud impression. Um, and you know, coffee. And she tastes it. Co- coffee's finally like, yeah, they taste it. It's just salt water. And then coffee yep. like closes a door and and it and it falls to the floor immediately. But like, That's my favorite part. It always reminds me of a uh, like cranberry on Thanksgiving that comes out of the can. when it gets cut off like that yeah because it's just flat yeah yeah and then and then and then and then then it like there's a great moment too where it lashes and then it moves off camera and the camera tilts to the uh or pans to the pool and there's a big splash that's a it's like they they get the splash effect without having to do a cgi uh water Mm -hmm. tentacle because like look we all we could do is the one water tentacle people but it's like a very artful moment where you see it leave the frame and then you turn and the splash is there and you're like ah it's gone now same thing when it got cut off in the door they cut right from a frame with the cg tentacle to a frame of a bunch of water Water Falling down moving the, yep. without moving the camera it works really Perfection. well and and it, as with so many things that had you know cg back in the dawn of cg they really spent the money wisely because uh, you count how many seconds of that scene is us looking through a wavy wibbly wobbly fisheye lens with no cg <laughs> you know what i mean because mm-hmm. as the tentacles wandering through you're it's like you're seeing what the tentacles seeing and it raises it, tension because you don't at that point they're not willing to show you what the, it is the tentacle but they also spend a lot of minutes of that scene not showing you the not tentacle showing which means the you tentacle. don't have to render it and then just for people who don't know <laughs> this is this is two years before terminator 2 this is basically the first 
major use, Todd, of a, a completely CGI thing? Uh, young mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. Arguable. I mean, guy. for me, Young Sherlock Holmes is the first one like where a character is there. There's been a lot of on-screen graphics. There's been a lot, sure. of, there's been a lot of computer graphics, but Young Sherlock Holmes and this, uh, giant leaps of faith in uh, what computer graphics could do, what any visual effects could do. I mean, uh, when you talk about how little, how few shots there are of the water tentacle, um, there are a lot of shots of the actors reacting to it with that caustic effect, that water, uh, light shine through water, caustic effect on their faces. Yeah. And they're being asked to react to something that they've, you could barely describe. You can maybe do a drawing. <laughs> and and they are supposed to be looking with awe with utter excitement, imagination. And of course, you know, that same brief was given to ILM, like, you need to make this water tentacle. And they're like, what? okay, we literally <laughs> have to make something that has never been seen before. You couldn't, I mean, how would you even describe this to somebody uh, before this film uh, of uh, a water, a, a tentacle of water that can change, his shape, change shape and move through a space? So this was a huge leap of faith in the visual effects world. Um, can computer graphics hold up to this level? Uh, so much stuff would have had to be built from scratch. Um, and another way that Jim Cameron is so good at crafting this stuff is his, uh, basic logistical, uh, uh, almost fiscal responsibility to the movie where this was a leap of faith. There was no guarantee that this sequence was going to work or get accomplished or executed in any way, shape or form. So he crafted it in a certain way where if it failed miserably, he could remove it from the film and it not break his through lines. Because you, if you really, if you watch the movie and then you look at it again and you're like, what if that scene was gone and any subsequent discussion of how they can control water, the movie still kind of works. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and for, for me personally, along with the whole rest of the industry, I was like, you know, this is, this is amazing. And I, uh, I gotta get it, become a part of this. This is, this is, this was hugely influential for me. It's kind of amazing also that uh, such an early thing, like the stained glass guy that we were talking about with young Sherlock Holmes, it was a character made of stained glass. That's like, okay, he's made of polygons because he's made of, you know, pieces of glass and that's a rigid body thing and we'll animate them together and it's basically magic. So it doesn't really matter how they connect. It's a ghostly thing. Lots of things going for it to make it easy. Uh, but water tentacle at first you might think, well, isn't that hard? It's it's no, like no flat surfaces. Everything is all wobbly and it's water, something that we know, we know what it looks like. Uh, but I think it actually was a really good choice because it is a single material, right? It's just water through and through. Uh, no one has any preconceived notions of what shape it should be or how it should move because it's a water tentacle, right? right. So mm-hmm. you can essentially mm-hmm. animate it however you want. Uh, it has to just vaguely look, vaguely look watery. And it was obviously within reach of the technology they had of like whatever they did for the cube mapping and the environment mapping onto the the transparent, translucent water. uh, That was shockingly within reach. Right. And I think it holds up extremely well. Yeah. Uh, You know, like the, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park were so much harder just because of our familiarity with animals and how they move and what they look like uh, than this. But the water tentacle, it looks so much more impressive because it's like how is this the first thing like it was you know the first big cg a lot of people see is like how is this the first thing isn't this incredibly difficult and yeah it is but it like 
it fit in it fit in with what they were able to do it's kind of it's i don't know if they did this but it's almost as like you know what can we do convincingly and what would fit within that? I know that's that's not how the cause and effect work. It goes the other way. He just has a vision and then chucks it over the fence to ILM. But it was such a nice synergy of what, what you're able to do convincingly and what the movie needed. And, you know, I every time I watch it, I scrutinize it and I'm like, okay, maybe it looks a little bit soft. If they did it today, it would surely look a little bit better. But boy, does it work in context, oh, yeah. right? It wouldn't it fits look, in with the, look that much the better. It wouldn't it, because, like you said, this is an abstraction. It's not like uh, a thing in our world that we're completely accustomed to seeing. It, it is. It is made of water, though, and that's the one thing that we're familiar it, with. Yeah, yeah, but but um, you Salty. know. Uh, and then, of course, one of the things I love about this movie, and it does get gasps for, with first timers as well, when you see a water tentacle with, you know, your you and your buddy's face on it. You know what you should do? You should stick your finger right in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's rude. And then, well. and then taste it. And then look it. <laughs> yep. Yep. But I think. Aside from the technical capability of it, it's actually imbued with a lot of character, which I think it's it's like, how do you make a water tentacle seem charming to me? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But they do that or, very or successfully. Or chopped off. Or yeah. Yeah. Like it's, that mm-hmm. was a very aggressive moment, right? So yeah. I thought they did a great job of Like the animation character. of it makes it feel like it's curious. It's a first contact. It's a probe and a first contact situation, right? Is essentially what this is. What this is right here. Yeah, it's kind of like a cat, like you know, investigating a new room, like poking in here, backing off a little bit, moving around there. And I, I I mean, technically, I did watch this with the first timer because my spouse Stephen had never seen it before. He had seen clips of of the water tentacle because everybody Mm -hmm. has, uh, you know, who was alive at that time. Um, But but yeah, after after it was done, we were talking about that sequence, and he was just like, I cannot believe how good that that looks. He was just floored by how fantastic it was and how early it was. It was just amazing. Yeah, that's one of the things uh, that experiences that you know these kids these days they'll never get um back back when we all didn't know it was possible if you watch this in 1989 as impressive as it is now it was like it was probably the reason Mm -hmm. everyone was even in the theater who was in my age group it's blowing our mind that this could be in a movie and in kind of the similar way to like the star wars effects for people who are a little bit older just or or the matrix which i also watched with my spouse Mm -hmm. and was very disappointed in his reaction you watch it with the modern sensibilities you're like that looked good but like i've seen I've, a million seen, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe, right? But the, <laughs> when we saw the water tentacle, there was no precedent for that. No. It was just like amazing. Yeah. Well, when word got around at ILM that the the 4K restoration was finally coming out and finally going into theaters, I, um, uh, John Noel said to me, he's like, yeah, I can't wait to see what our 1K renders look like on the big screen at 4K. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, they looked a little soft, Great. but you know, for, pretty good. for whatever reason, this must be like a uh, word association thing. But like back, and I don't even know if this was used for this, but one of the early rendering programs was soft image, right? Back in the early days when they were doing things on SGI still. Uh, and I always thought that the, the effects that I would see in the making of that were done in soft image always look a little soft to me. Soft image. <laughs> it's right in the name. What are you talking it's about? Right, yeah. <laughs> right. And the water tentacle looks a little, not as soft as a later VFX scene that has some serious problems that I hope Todd can explain. But sure. yeah, it looks a little soft and I find that softness pleasing. Kind of like the early Pixar movies look a little, little, little softer on the edges. I kind of like it. <laughs> okay. So um, next what happens is coffee is going to arm the warhead because he's been given orders to basically 
Uh, first off, it's he's he's going to have the warhead so that he can blow up the sub if the Russians come by. But he also can be paranoid and say, there's aliens down there. I'm going to blow them up. So yeah, new from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. He's, he's, <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> another camera movie. So uh, <laughs> he's going to do that. And they're like, well, what do we do? But they've, they've like jammed the doors and blocked the doors and stuff like that. So we get like, before we can even confront coffee, Bud has to swim, um, just swim in the water over hold his breath to another hatch and that one's locked so he has to go then he's like i guess i'm going in the moon pool and and the other guy is like i can't do it bud i can't do it i'm like well you go back i'm gonna go and this is by the way um like freezing cold water uh mm-hmm. and, but but he does it and he very slowly emerges and you see him silently gr- groaning taking a breath and groaning mm-hmm. and all that and then very slowly moving around the edge of the moon pool to try to get to coffee um and uh, I don't know why you tap him on the shoulder and then try to hit well, him with the uh, thing. Because <laughs> he, like, oh. it, it was a great character moment there. So first you got Lindsay saying, voice into the audience, uh, Coffee's a trained killer. He's not going to try to attack him. But of course, Bud yep. is, right? Yeah. Uh, and But but Bud had the, had the drop on him. But Bud is not a murderer. Bud doesn't kill people or hit people with wrenches for a living. And so he yep. hesitates because everyone would and hesitate. And he sees the gun. Right, he, he thinks maybe gun. I can get the gun away and right, I can threaten right. him with the gun. And that's why he slows yeah, down. He's not, Bud is not a professional. Not, a, not good at this, no. <laughs> and so there's a there's a, a, a fight between them and uh, it's very exciting. And then Bud is, uh, oh no, losing. What, Bud's losing. What's going to happen? And of course our friend, um, I forget his name, but Catfish. the- catfish uh he didn't go back he didn't go back he he came into the moon pool anyway and he was so quiet that we didn't even hear him because he didn't have to be that quiet they were fighting a lot of splashing Mm -hmm. happening and uh, his ability to punch hard was set up in like his the first thing you saw him in an hour earlier (laughs) yeah and so he he knocks out uh uh coffee uh or fights coffee but coffee gets away no (laughs) with the warhead no um and there's and and, a cute and little so sub in like, in and so and a cute little sub it, the, the 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 little mini re- remote sub plus the sub and you're like oh okay well this movie's just had a very exciting scene where people almost drowned and then people fight and almost die and then other people fight and like well we're gonna take a break no we're not Ooh. because now one <laughs> sub is gonna chase another sub and they're gonna <laughs> smash into each other and water's gonna be leaking in and all of that and that ends in coffee sub imploding um but the- also this is another hero moment for Lindsay. this mm-hmm. is like she's the one that is the best at this at you have every other character saying you're better at this than me you go yeah, one night she's yeah. driving one night she says pulls you're a great than- move yeah. refers to her yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yep and, and so she so that even more excitement but although coffee dies uh what is it uh big geek gets yeah. away down the side a little scene of trying to use the robot hand to grab the rope oh and almost oh. gets it no no no, no. <laughs> he got it well so here's isn't one of the things i had in my notes here bud works in an ocean environment and like i don't know if he's always been underwater but his failure to tie a good knot <laughs> he was under pressure he was I, under hands that's a sailor demerit right there. Um, you, you had it. It was the drama of like, can we catch it? Did we catch it? I think he gets caught in the claw. He goes, he's tying it off. Uh, Coffee's trying to attack him. And it's like, I, in my memory, is like, I guess he never successfully ties that up. It's like, no, he ties it, but does a crap job. He ties it. Yeah. He doesn't tighten it. Uh, can I, I, can I say one thing about the physicality of this movie? Like the, the things that, that take us along for the ride. Um, there's a couple, there's one shot of catfish and bud swimming from one 
uh, tank to another underwater, and it's an uninterrupted shot, and that is Ed Harris and the actor playing Catfish doing that swim where the camera pans with them, and they go this incredible distance, and you, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in the theater, I'm like, hold your breath. Hold my breath that long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the moment when he finally comes up uh, into the moon pool, (gasps) and he takes a little breath, and he just is shivering. And very few movies would take the time to actually set that up. And it just lends to the, the, the physicality of this movie where there's, there's also in terms of like visual themes of this movie, there's a lot of scenes of people trying to open up things with crowbars and being unsuccessful, like trying Mm. to turn knobs and, and, and you feel that struggle. I mean, you made the, the, the diehard, um, uh, comparison where not a lot goes right for John McClane and even, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark where things don't go right. Not a lot of things go right for Bud and the, and the gang. And that just makes it that much, that much less of a superhero movie where Mm -hmm. everybody's going to come in and kick ass. And, And this poor guy is, freezing his butt off barely being able to make this swim and that's what makes it so heroic when when catfish does it after him uh those kind of moments i think make set this movie apart really the only truly like superhero-ish thing about this movie that i find even the tiniest bit unbelievable is that they would be able to manipulate anything with their fingers in water that cold after they got out of the water (laughs) but i am willing to let that go through the entire movie because everything else is so great yeah, they, they did have the line earlier that they can't power the heaters and they'd all be freezing, right. but then the movie loses interest in that idea. They, this yeah. movie was so difficult to make on so many levels and mm-hmm. and borderline unsafe in a lot of cases, but it's like if they had more time and more budget, do you think Jim Cameron would have re- refrigerated those sets? So that absolutely. They have <laughs> absolutely. You oh, absolutely they were already kind of cold at many, because no matter how warm it is in the weather, wherever they were in Atlanta or whatever, like still being wet all the time is miserable. Yeah, South Carolina. It's terrible. It was, yeah. it was a rough shoot. So um, I think the movie pivots at this point, right? Coffee is dead. Um, now we have a different threat, which is there, we have sent a nuclear <laughs> weapon down the abyss to where aliens that we just met are that's not great and you but before we get there the sub is damaged and it leads to what i think is the most memorable thing in this movie and one yep. of the most memorable scenes in any movie i have ever seen which yep. is the cold equations because it is like a spaceship mm-hmm. where they have one diving suit and it's a long swim to the moon pool and they can't use the sub the sub is broken and there's not and it's leaking and and i like the detail where it's leaking behind the thing that's been bolted to the bulkhead <laughs> so they can't even plug it because it's they can't unscrew it they don't have a crescent wrench to do it all he needed was a crescent wrench yeah. and, and also the the, uh, the water filling it really like the water fills that chamber that they're in fast enough that you realize like look what would you do you don't have yeah. a wrench you tried to pull it off with yeah. your hands Every second you're not doing something, the water is filling it more. This yep. one of the biggest tensions in the scene is that he refuses to put his helmet on. I'm like, water's gonna go yes. in your suit. Yeah. Like, don't take uh-huh. the suit off. You have to put. You have to. Yeah. And we even saw a crescent wrench earlier in the film. He There's had to move it out of the of way. The, uh-huh. right? But now uh-huh. he doesn't have it. So this so this good. is that moment where, as as said earlier. Bud is going to do, but you see it on his face. Bud is going to do the chivalrous thing and say, Lindsay, chivalrous but stupid. you survive and I will <laughs> yep. die. And she says, no, we're not going to do it that way. Well, we don't have time. She says, we don't have time to get the suit we, off. We and can't, she's right. we can't do it. You 
are going to, you are going to take me back. I'm going to drown and you are going to take me back. And, uh, and without going into a lot of, as you know, Bob here, we all know that there are stories about, I mean, that she says it briefly, it's like when hypothermia, I've got more time in very, very cold water people who drown can be revived later. It's a real thing. It's an absolute real thing. But still, mm-hmm. in this moment, she makes the decision and the realization, which is, Virgil, <laughs> you've got to let me drown. And I've got to let you let me drown. And then you can drag my you. lifeless body with you back to the moon pool and maybe you'll revive me. And, that's, and, and it happens so quickly that it's like... Before you know it, it just happens because the, the water is rising, is rising no time. so fast. fast and it's so harrowing. And, and the shot of him swimming with her limp body back to the pool, just it's un- unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and and Bud also like so Bud is trying to get the panel off or whatever. But once he can't get that panel off, he is literally out of ideas. And he basically says, Lindsay, save us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're <laughs> smart. You're <laughs> smart, <laughs> Lindsay. Yeah. Figure it out. And then she does. And then, like I said, she has to emotionally manage him through the plan that she just mm-hmm. came up with. So he will actually do it. She's like, you're a stronger swimmer than I am. We yeah. don't have time to change suits. Don't argue with me. Just let me do this. And then and then she's, she allows herself that moment of humanity right before she drowns. Mm-hmm. This was a 1989 PG-13 film. And with the the unofficial rule of the MPAA is a PG-13 film is allowed one non-sexual F-bomb, non-sexually tinged F-bomb. And boy, that was strategically used in this when she says, you have to look at this logically. And Bud says, (laughs) F-logic. And and, and Ed Harris, beautiful screaming, you know, eye contact tones. Um, This movie, this scene... I, I, it's hard for me to even talk about because it, it's it. I even just hearing you guys talk, describe it, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking yeah. about it. And it's one of those reasons where I tried, you know, when I was when when this movie came out on Laserdisc, I definitely studied it like crazy. Um, but the lack of it being on HD uh, and only having my DVDs to look at, um, I, I didn't want to revisit it too many times because I wanted to keep that scene fresh. And because to me, it's like. I don't know what magic went on with between the actors and the screenplay and the editing. It it's it is one of the most amazing scenes uh, in all of cinema. I'm with you on that. And, and when they do the revival, they do a thing that many movies have done before with the fake out of like uh, someone is uh, dead and we're trying to bring them back with CPR mm-hmm. or other life saving things, and it seems <laughs> like it's failed. But then the person doesn't doesn't no! give up and they come back. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and this this scene uh, this scene is not doing anything different. But for whatever reason, I, maybe it's the amount of time they pause between. I, when I saw this movie in the theater, I hundred percent believe she was dead and yep. it's not because i was an unsophisticated yep. movie viewer who hadn't seen other movies do the same mm-hmm. thing it's because they sold it so well and it seemed reasonable for her to die given everything else that had happened in the movie and how many other people had died and it, like absolutely it, right and but he doesn't give up and you know because of movie logic it saves her but like i remember just like him hitting her chest and just like yeah angrily bringing her back to life very i, I, I think it's that pause in between that does it I like that he goes because it's like, you know, you have to have the oh, you didn't yell loud enough because that's why she didn't come back yet, mm-hmm. which is classic. But I do like that he he does the yelling. He does the manual and then he goes back to like, no, we need to actually do the uh, CPR, machine, yeah. CPR yeah, again. Let's sh- now let's and, shock her again. <laughs> and it's like, more CPR. yeah, that's and what you got to do. Again. 
that, but that's more effective. And so he does it. And then, you know, but it's so hard to balance making that believable and having the tension because we know she's going to come back. Right, right, right. But I think that it's what you said, John, the stakes were so high in other parts. It was believable after, they'd let her die. After that whole previous scene, you can't have it be easy, though, right? You, you ha- yeah. It has to be incredibly yeah, and difficult. And it definitely yeah. was. Like, that scene That scene of reviving seems to go on so long. It does. Like, you feel like the other people who are watching him, who have, they've, they've given up and they're trying to tell him no, and you feel like those people. You're like, dude, mm-hmm. it's over. It's like, done. We've, because they, they let you watch him do compressions before he gives up and then restarts. Just the first part of that is so feels so oh, long yeah. when you're watching it. Well... Uh, the movie changes again now because now it is, how are we going to get down to the abyss for this warhead? How is that even possible? And the answer is set up, as you know, that scene where the, where the rat is put in the, uh, oxygenated fluid, uh, mm-hmm. the, the fluoro oxidated fluid, uh, seemed extraneous at the time, but it's I, I, not. I tried to figure out when I was no, a kid, not. when I saw a movie in 1989, <laughs> I spent so long trying to figure out how they did that shot with the rat. So disappointed to learn that they put a rat into liquid, <laughs> into into into, oxi- into oxygenated fluid. Right, it, they, it they just did it. They just did it. Yeah. Aww, <laughs> they just said, that's rat. why people in the UK can't see this movie. Right, that's exactly. Right. I mean, um, like, and maybe that's why it didn't occur to me because I had you know all the laws about animal harm in movies or whatever. But I guess in 1989, mm. well, well I, I mean, just didn't know that it was possible, so I thought it was a trick. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was was the animal harmed? I think emotionally, yes, but physically <laughs> apparently not because this is a thing that you can it's a it's a real thing. So It's been done to the, hundreds of rats. They're going to Did they do it to Ed Harris? They, they so <laughs> probably not. I figured out how they did it with Ed Harris. Um, so so they're like, "All right, well, bud, we're going to put you in a in in the suit." He's like, "Oh, it's my turn to do this." Uh, and you're not going to even be able to talk cuz you're going to be drinking you know, breathing the fluid, so you're going to have a little keyboard that you're going to type on. Uh, which leads to lots of humor because he says I'm a bad typist and uh, there's lots of misspelled words and stuff, which is fun, I think. Um, it's also funny that this movie was clearly made before the advent of texting because he didn't use any <laughs> didn't abbreviations. Use yeah. No, no, he doesn't even know. He's just he, he no, just, he just saw this keyboard for the first time. He doesn't know. It, every like, time oh. he typed out Y-O-U, I thought that exact thing, having yep. being texted by my teenagers. All yeah, time. right. <laughs> that was before, before all of that. So they send him down and we enter this movie that is another, I, I think, James Cameron having so much fun because he's obsessed with the deep trenches of the ocean where he's going down uh with the, with the little robot sub and the robot sub gets crushed and he's like all right well <laughs> i'm still going down and then he's kind of losing it and they're and and they're they're worried that he's completely gone nuts and then he says at one point i see lights and then and i'll enjoy that the one marine is like mm-hmm. he's hallucinating he's terribly hallucinating. and it's like no yep. there that, are lights down right, there and, and, and that's <laughs> another one where they don't explain that or voice it they just cut after he says that to him oh yeah it's it, very Bathed by light. He's completely <laughs> lost it, and he has he has not. And he reaches the bottom. Oh, he goes past the crane. That's a great moment, right? It's like, oh, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm kind of surprised. Like, I'm not an expert about underwater Stupid things, but crane. I'm pretty sure the only the only thing keeping you from diving that deep is not that your lungs are filled with air. It's the fact that the water would crush you like a grape. <laughs> uh, so, well, he's got the special anti grape uh, suit that yeah, he's wearing. Yeah, you know that is it's a gigantic steel can as, yeah. as uh, James Cameron actually knows. But you know, movie magic spares no expense. So he gets Speaking down to the bottom. Of, can I yeah, can I ahead. give a little bit of background on the movie magic? I mean, one thing again, this movie was very very difficult to make on many levels. Um, next time you watch it, think about. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you get swept up into the uh, the, the 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 magic of the movie where he's breathing. You know, that oxygen, he's breathing that oxygenated water. He's breathing that. Every single take 
of Ed Harris with that goop in his helmet. He's just holding his breath. Yep. And even, I mean, when he's in the moon pool, that's that's one thing. And they had to, when they yelled cut, they'd open up that with that, that giant handle and then he would take a big breath. And then they would have to fill it up, close it for another take and roll as long as he could <laughs> hold his breath. Even when he's diving underwater, when he's going over the edge and doing all of his underwater scenes, he's still surrounded by water in almost every one of those shots. Uh, yeah, this movie was very dangerous. I, see, I, I always <laughs> assumed that there was like a double dome thing. Yeah. Nope. Nope. No, oh, no. He no, just had wow. water around him and that, that, that front flap just came up really quickly and easily so they could get an oxygen mask in there for yeah. him. And I knew that. Jeez. So watching the movie this time, there was added tension for me because I knew that as an actor, he was just holding his breath in all of those underwater scenes and all of the scenes oh, like right next to the moon pool, like, when, like Todd was saying. Yep. And he, his... his he has to act that entire scene where he's breathing in liquid for the first time and panicking like the rat actually does. And he does all of that with water right in front of his face. It was just a, a masterful mm. performance. Yeah. And speaking of people being underwater, this one of the questions I had on this rewatch is the various dead bodies that we see uh, in, the, in the submarine, in the, uh, the oil drilling platform. I was staring at them and I'm like, did they make those actors lay there motionless holding their breath or are they mannequins? And if they're mannequins, they're pretty good looking mannequins. And if they're actors, wow, they do a good job looking like dead bodies because the shots are long. Like, I, I just counting the shots like, yeah, that's an actor. They said, OK, and we're going to roll. Remember, you're a dead body. Your eyes are open. You're not moving and go. And you're like, one, one thousand, two, <laughs> pretty good dead bodies underwater. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, well, my, uh, so I watched this with Lauren. We love this movie. Um, and she said, if I ever ran into Ed Harris or Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, you know, the sad thing is that I would say, I love you in the abyss. And all I'd be doing is reminding them of a very traumatic time in their lives. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, but sorry, that's the movie that we love. Okay. So he gets to the bottom and they're like, uh, Hey, I'm down here. And they're like, Hey, he's not crazy after all. Um, let's walk him through disarming the bomb and the, his lights are off and he has to put on the glow stick which is green and then of course there's the joke where there are the two wires and you got to cut the one with these colors and he's like yeah it's just and all the light green. goes out just before that just like before you, see him, you know what is he gonna do well, without his light? oh great he's got a glow stick yeah oh boy yeah it's a good and the glow sticks were moment. set up several times yeah and, yep. and yep. earlier in the movie so that when this time comes around you're like oh okay i get it those glow sticks and in the 80s uh kids knew about glow sticks yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep yep yeah, so so then but and and then he still does down at the bottom of the ocean with only a glow stick and no color to guide him. He still does the I'll cut this wire. Nah, yeah. That wire. <laughs> Cuz that's <laughs> how you disarm a bomb is cut the wire that <laughs> you yeah, were almost per, not going to cut. It's like putting in a USB uh, a mm-hmm. connector. Yeah. You, just, you try it once, then try it Then flip it over and then <laughs> then you'll be right. So at this point, it's like, okay, n- you know, knew it was a one-way trip, uh, but, you know, I had to come. Um, Your gauge could be wrong. Lo- mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, start back now. And he's like, no, I'm just going to stay here. Love you, wife, the whole thing. He, he's yeah, going to go. I wish he would listen to her because I agree. His gauge could his be gauge wrong. His gauge could be wrong. He could drop his trying to come back. Uh, I don't know. The body language of uh, Ensign Monk there basically said he, he knew he was never coming back. And I, I just got the impression that they had already sort of talked about it. Like, yeah, dude, you're, you're, you're not going to make it back. This, is, this, is, this literally no, yeah, is a one-way no way. ticket. But 
the aliens forget you don't forget we, we they're aliens the aliens uh <laughs> come and take his hand and take him to their giant spaceship or city or whatever that is deep down there big round thing with all the big mm-hmm. uh, towers and stuff and they make Magical a little lights o- and they make a little oxygen space for bud love that so that he so can good. breathe it's like it's this is this part of the movie i say is the underwater 2001 mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um it, it, it is a little bit like that um and then this is where correct me if i'm wrong people who have seen the regular version many times this is where the movie is very different it's the biggest chunk it's the most uh, significant piece right. that is uninterrupted uh it basically he the uh, they they make a little air pocket for him. Uh, he makes eye contact, and uh, well, well he, first off, he he uh, ejects the <laughs> the liquid oxygen yeah. uh, right. like he's From being born again. Yeah, he's like mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is this is like he's crying like a baby. Um, they make eye contact. He says, "Hey, how you doing?" And then they basically he he kind of smiles and winks and does the little salute. And then they cut to the deep core. Coming back up to you now, the 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 aliens or or underwater creatures, whatever they are, come up and uh, scoop up the deep core. I guess there's a, not shown <laughs> is the moment where they like pull it in with their tractor beam or something so it can rise with the rest of them. And they go to the surface. And in the special edition, what you get is again a very 2010 kind of thing, whereas the, this has been a Cuban Missile Crisis esque kind of escalation happening, and uh, that's going on. And um, Ed Harris says, you know, hey, we we you, you, we you might we might not kill our uh, each other. Um, what what gives you that impression? And they're like, I have this footage of the Holocaust. And he's like, oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, terrible. Um, but maybe not. And uh, and so and and they they in the special edition they put uh, using their water controlling abilities they put giant uh, giant tidal waves around all the coastlines of the world as a threat that we could destroy you at any time. It, a very again very 2010. It's sort of like we are very powerful and you are being bad. So behave better, children. And there's mm-hmm. even that line about oh you 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 soldiers might be out of a job. Um, and <laughs> that, that, the, the idea that uh, be, uh, having a superior alien force that can threaten us all with tidal waves will eliminate conflict is interesting. Yes, I think it's I think it's sweetly naive by <laughs> it's that character. aspirational. But but um, so the, the so it's very different. I look, I prefer I, I prefer the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings movies, too. I prefer getting a lot of detail here about the characters. And what I like about the way that the special edition ends is that it seems, although it is a little bit hokey, it also seems like after this whole amount of time with trying to find out who these aliens are, to have them have a purpose other than returning Bud to have it be kind of like making their presence known and telling humanity not to not to destroy itself feels a little more well-rounded than the more abrupt ending i think it's the abruptness i remember i i actually watched the siskel and ebert review of the laserdisc special edition (laughs) where they basically said the way they described it is there's better character stuff and that the ending felt less abrupt and i think that's probably the way i would phrase it too is it's not Mm -hmm. that i'm so relieved that there's a use them together use them in peace kind of ending here as much as at least we get to spend a little more time kind of 
thinking about like, what are the aliens trying to do? And are they trying to send us a message? And what do they know about us that I, I feel like getting that extra time makes it feel like less of a sudden ending. But I, I totally can understand uh, what I assume is John and Todd's view that the uh, the original ending is, is maybe better for not having the uh, all these moons except Europa. It- I think it might also depend on sort of what are your primary motivations uh, for interest in a film like this. And I think the reason that I didn't like it when I saw it the first time and was kind of like, I don't ever need to watch this movie again, uh, was because I was really excited about this mystery. What are these things? And in the theatrical cut, it is much more abrupt. You don't get that resolution as to why they are here, why they are doing all those things. So to me, it sort of ended like... Just like the the aliens sort of ended like a wet fart. Pardon the pardon oh, no. the pun. But but I was really I was just super kind of disappointed and annoyed by that. So when I saw the special edition and I was like, oh, this this is the piece that was missing for somebody like me who was watching for the aliens much more mm-hmm. than for the 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 bombs or the the oil rig or even the people. Sorry, people. Uh, I don't care oh. that much about the ocean. I really want aliens. And I finally got them in this version. And I think alien attacks are way overdone. We get bad aliens in just about everything. So, yeah, it might be like 2010. It might be like a few other stories. But yeah, I feel like aliens I would like you, way, way people. more of these. Yes, I would. I'll take yeah. this trope over bad aliens any day. I'm with you 100 percent, Erica. So I usually like the extended versions of movies, too. And I, like I said, I don't mind the longer parts of this. But and I also agree that the theatrical ending is abrupt and also not great. Like, it's just <laughs> it, yeah. it feels like I I felt that when I saw the movie in the theater, I'm like, wait, that's the ending. That, what? And not because of what <laughs> happened in the ending, but because of essentially how the scenes were cut together like it was it's not the actual ending that's abrupt like by the time it ends like he comes out of the thing takes the helmet off they kiss like that's fine right it's everything else it just it just it just didn't feel as smooth and i didn't know anything about the special edition when i saw it in the theater right uh but my main complaint about the special edition it goes to uh what erica was just saying it's like what do you what are you uh what are you in this movie for i was kind of there for the secret underwater things but even just from the first time watching it, i said okay look this movie is not about the underwater creatures at all it is about the people on that oil rig and the underwater creatures are essentially just part of the environment that is challenging to them i am actually invested in the story of bud and Lindsay and the struggle of those people on that oil rig and i i I feel like even in the special edition they don't put enough superstructure in this movie to support the overarching fairly silly tidal wave threatening aliens like the aliens are not a character in the movie even in the special edition they're they're a curiosity there are things that the people see but the the movie where they are trying to teach humanity a lesson by threatening to destroy all the coast that is reachable by tidal waves is both silly and not set up or supported by any of the rest of the movie. And so not only was I not there for that part of the movie, if I was there for that part of the movie, the movie didn't support that part. It always feels tacked on and a hard left turn at the end, hard left turn into things that I'm not interested in. And the, the, the plot ending of the theatrical version is essentially... The al- why do the aliens save him? 
because they have been watching them and they did see his sacrifice and they understand what's going on. And so they essentially saved him because it's the right thing to do. And they're nice. And in my head canon, they are not aliens, but they are native creatures to Earth that just happened to live in the deep oceans and we didn't know about them Could or be. whatever. And so this is essentially an encounter with another civilization that mostly keeps to themselves, but intervened in this scenario because they had they were creeping on their home by coming down down, down near that big trench. And they the aliens are, of course, watching everything that goes on. And when they saw it, they saved Bud, which essentially allowed his sacrifice to allow them to come back together. And the ending is that the people, our heroes are saved, our relationships are mended, and the aliens were there too. And you know what, that, John? I think that fits in a bow for me. I, 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 I totally agree that there's not a ton of structure with the the aliens, the NTIs, uh, in in the earlier parts of the film to sort of rest that ending on. But for me, but for me, I back mm-hmm. I backfilled that with some of the other elements of the movie in my head. The fact that the soldiers were sort of the bad guys to begin with, that the the military industrial complex is an antagonist from literally the first scene of the film. So all of that thematically played well enough to basically, you know, and maybe that's all in my head, but it did sort of support the ending in a way that I felt like the movie thematically did still play out and and flow from point to point to point to point to that end. And they did put all those scenes in the special edition earlier in the movie to show you more about the global conflict. Right. But again, I feel yeah. like the scope of this movie is those people in that rig and the boat that's above them in the yeah. storm. The scope and- of the movie is not the entire planet Earth. I don't care what ships are doing near Cuba. I don't care about U.S. John Russia doesn't tensions. care about the planet Earth. You heard it here <laughs> first. No, because this, this is a this is a story that sends it sends like hours in in a rig under the water with these people. It does not. The movie does not jump out to show you anything about global conflict. There's no right. scenes in the White House. There's no scenes about. It's just <laughs> news clips. We right? never and, even cut to the topside ship, like how they escaped uh, from the right. hurricane. It's or very whatever. tightly focused it's on. Super and so I feel intimate. like the, the sphere of the movie is a tight sphere, and that also doesn't support the larger macro thing. And that's like as abrupt as the original theatrical ending is. I feel like it fits better with the movie that they shot and I don't think they have if if they wanted to do the movie with the tidal waves I would A get rid of the tidal waves B edit out the guy getting his pants pulled down uh, yes, and C you. put way more larger scope stuff to support essentially a not a Roland Emmerich movie but you know what I'm getting at a movie that does take the scope of the <laughs> mm-hmm. entire earth while also mm-hmm. following a group of people through a disaster yeah, there's a couple of reasons why I prefer the theatrical ending, uh, a lot of which were said here, particularly like this was such an intimate movie about relationships and about uh, claustrophobia and the darkness and and being is- completely isolated, completely isolated and figuring out how, do they're, how they're going to survive in this world. And then to cut to, um, boy, these guys have really big TVs and have a montage of mm. humanity's greatest <laughs> water you know, worst hits. We need to yeah, stop getting TVs. that montage because so many aliens have that same montage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to know how they editing this whole thing together. But uh, And then to cut to the, um, the, the outside world, what's happening in the outside world, and have that to be, you know, that is a big change of gears for That's an true. audience who has already been through so much um, still, I, I do love it. I think it's, you know, very, the day, day the earth stood still, uh, yeah. type of, of ending. I, I, clearly one of Cameron's favorite movies. Um, the, but also one of the, another reason is that it is, uh, <laughs> Cameron, for all of his bravado and, 
uh, tough guy. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a, a trucker for a while. He's big into science. He's he's real man's man. Okay, he's a total softy. He is an absolute <laughs> romantic, total softy, and yep. nowhere in this movie is his childlike uh, <laughs> romanticism on display more than that really nice uh back and forth between bud when he's texting uh they think they think humans should put away childish things uh of course that's only a suggestion and they cut to the military guy up on the surface just clenched jaw <laughs> you know doing that thing but i want to blow that, things up now now if they had if he had just left it there that would have been one thing but then to cut to the benthic petroleum guy look up at him with a grin and say, looks, looks like, like you guys, guys are out of a job. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, oh, okay. It's, it's, it's super hokey. I mean, it is. It's mm-hmm. really playing for the cheap seats I, I, at that I moment. I have thought for a long time, I, I, I like, I mean, I think both endings are problematic, right? I, I have a, a, a preference here. I should say also, I first saw the special edition. I've only ah. seen the non-special Ooh. edition one time, and I was not impressed because I had already seen the special edition on the big screen when they did the special limited re-release with the special edition in theaters. And so for me, once I saw that, I couldn't, the other version of it, I was just like, no, big no. But it's true. I keep thinking, like, what would be another ending for this movie, though? The problem is there is a the script as tight and as very careful as this whole script is. The end is sort of like, uh... How do I end this movie? I mean, the, the ending is their relationship is reconciled and they're safe, yes. right? And so, you just needed to execute that in a more cathartic way well, I, because it, I, you, you don't. I, I was thinking, is there a is there a version of this ending where one of the little glowy things comes to the to the deep core with Bud in it, and they're basically like they get everybody off and take them to the shore or something, and basically like don't tell anybody about right, the. You can still have the big the ship save them. Like I mean, that, the aliens but... control water. You just need you just need the aliens to be the the Deus Ex Machina and save everybody, and and they're yeah, it's, and, they and they're saving them because they because of the human qualities that they have demonstrated when the aliens are or, watching. It's or they, they could drop Bud back off at Deep Core and and just say you know they, they're going to get picked up later by human beings. Don't tell anybody yeah, about yeah. us yeah. aliens. You, just need, and you, just need, the day, the you need the day to be saved, and you need to understand that. Yeah. It happened because of the i feel like the the, the bud Lindsay relationship is the heart of this movie and it resolves and yeah uh, oh with for a sure sacrifice it's just know? that there also needs to be a plot version of that ending too i you yeah. guys didn't even mention the thing that i think is the, every time i see it that i think is the most ridiculous thing about the ending which is they're like oh we didn't get the bends so that's great and it's like yeah i guess they did magic to you i use this as an example of hanging a lantern on something it's a perfect example yeah there's a thing that doesn't make sense and you just make a character say it and problem solved yeah i guess we didn't get you see anything you don't understand a wizard did it i guess he 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 was from another planet they must have done something to us they must have done something to us that's true but anyway the the ending although although difficult uh you know for for some uh, I think, yeah, I, I go with the, the, the kind of hokey cheesiness of it because I do like the idea of, especially amid the Cold War, saying mm-hmm. maybe mom and dad need to tell the kids to play nice. and that I feel like, I feel like the tidal wave is not a, a, a human civilization is, destroying it's weapon. It's weird. I, I, I know. We, we, <laughs> you we'll can only threat- kill the coast. We'll, thre- <laughs> we'll threaten you. It's like, or you blow up Jupiter. I mean, there are things you can do to yes. show your uh, power. Intellectually, John, I see your point emotionally i just want to see all the alien stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. More aliens so i'm like you're, you're i think you're right john i think you're right but also 
I don't care. But oh, fair <laughs> enough. And, and Todd, can you talk about the decision to leave the guy getting his, the extra getting his pants pulled down? So leave that in the movie. Okay. The, the, well, there's more of it. I don't in, even know what the, you're talking about. In the re-release, there's there's actually more of it because it's panned down well, a little bit. You're gonna have right, to rewatch the scene, Erica. So yeah, <laughs> here's here's the okay. I'm gonna have to have get a little bit of a <laughs> film history dealy here. Yep. Jim Cameron. Uh, this is a this is a widescreen movie. And he was one of the pioneers of of uh, uh, filming his movies, and I think this was his first Super 35 movie. He didn't want to use anamorphic lenses to get that widescreen look. There's a lot of reasons not to use anamorphic lenses. It makes uh, everything more difficult at uh, depth of field. Oh, poor uh, VFX people. And, well, hold on. <laughs> it, it, take, it, take, it takes more light uh, to, to light your scenes, uh, much shallower depth of field. Uh, the clarity of the image uh, gets hit, but also because of all of the rear projection, miniatures, uh, opticals, and digital work, they were. He was like, okay, definitely, we're going to do Super Thirty Five. So what you're doing is you're exposing a full negative, and you're only using a sliver of it for the widescreen uh, presentation. Now he also believed very strongly in having a very good uh, NTSC. Uh, version of his movies starting with the abyss and terminator 2 and true lies afterwards so what he would do for home video you know as we previously knew it which was ntsc 133 aspect ratio he would reframe every single shot using that previously uh, unseen part of the of the exposed negative to make for more more pleasing compositions than just panning and scanning that 235 uh, widescreen edition so that that is a lot of backstory for the fact that uh the tidal wave sequence was similarly shot with spherical lenses using the full negative and then in post-production they could decide what part of the uh widescreen part of the negative they would want to use and I had only seen the special edition in its widescreen edition, so I only ever saw it in 235, where there's a particular shot of the tidal wave when it's frozen. I think it's depicting Santa Monica. Um, yeah. And you see the tips of the, the top of the wave, and you see the heads of people who were previously running away from the wave who have now turned around to look at the frozen wave. And in the corner of the frame, in the left bottom left of the frame, you saw like a guy pretty close to camera you just saw like him from the shoulders up and he was reacting to something like almost like he stepped on something and then he he dips down and then he leaps back into frame. So that's the 235 version. But the 133 version of the special edition showed <laughs> that these extras that were running away and then turned around. Well, one of uh, these two guys, I'm going to just assume they came together. They were buddies. Uh, deep pants his buddy. <laughs> he deep pants him. Pulled the shorts right down to his ankles. Wow. All the way down. And his butt is incredibly visible. If you know what you're looking at, almost everybody in the He's theater. He's basically or, in the foreground. He is the closest he is thing in to the, the lens. Foreground. <laughs> almost everybody is looking at the wave. And it's a locked off shot. So, okay. But very, very few people got to see that. And I know there were some 16 by 9 versions of that floating around. Um, maybe when it was uh, pre just very briefly shown on um, an HBO. And I think it was a 16 by 9 type version, which is a, a compromise where you're seeing a little bit more of the top and bottom. So you got a glimpse of that. So uh, it became lore. It's like one of the like the biggest what the fuck. 
<laughs> F moments of, of the movie. And uh, you can watch the YouTube videos got like 7 million views or whatever. So when it came time for this restoration, uh, the master of the restoration, the, the aspect ratio was going to be 235. He wasn't going to even waste his time using a, making a 16 by 9 or, God forbid, a 133 version. But along the way, somebody made the conscious effort to basically tilt down on the shot mm-hmm. so that we can now see <laughs> bare bottom in the, the widescreen version, which I think is just, the, it's just an amazing coda to this entire thing. <laughs> it really, wow. undercuts, the ending the, it really undercuts that scene, though, I have to it, say. It, it, that scene really does. It. Yep. I did not. <laughs> well, no, you have to know, once you know it's there, though, it's just, yeah. they're like, oh, there it is with the guy, that's the guy who's going to get pants. It cannot be unseen. <laughs> so from a, from a thing that was cut out of the movie to the, to the special edition, which was made a couple years later, uh, to now having a triumphant 4K restoration now that guy uh is is forever is forever and his buddy his buddy is is showing that to everybody this big hollywood moment yep yeah it's very funny i mean there's so many different versions and we should say todd you and i have talked about this a lot um this is part partly my white whale because James Cameron was like, yeah, yeah, I'll uh, sign off on that 4K restoration eventually. And like, we, 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 there was never an HD, there was like an HD version of the non-special edition that was on like HBO and other pay cable, but that was it. And, and I don't know where that HD version came from, but wait, there was never like a, a good solid Blu-ray release. And so we've all been kind of waiting and they finally have done the 4k HDR complete restoration. And it, it, for years it was rumored to be just around the corner, just around the corner ever since 2015. Yeah. It's uh, perpetually 18 months away. Yep. Almost the year of Linux on the desktop. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, it's, it's, and then my, my catchphrase was I'll believe it when it's in my hands. Now, what's beautiful is that this movie got a one day, one day only, one day only in theaters, one day on a weekday. Come on folks. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this should have had a whole week, but it, it does exist. It's real. You can buy it right now on iTunes and prime video. And in, I think it's March, it comes out on blu-ray and on blu-ray. ultra blu-ray with, and, with, and you get both versions uh, my itunes yes. purchase does not have the special edition accessible for some reason which is super <gasps> weird although Ours, uh, on apple it. tv <laughs> but uh, it's very weird i had to watch it on mo- the movies anywhere version which did offer it but it's fine i mean it's just it's weird it's it's ours they're, they're, changed they're when we first it bought it it yeah. was it wasn't there and then it switched yep. and now it just says special edition and the theatrical version you have to p- pick special you actually have to interest actively choose the theatrical to Correct. watch the theatrical. yeah I, th- I think the yeah. buttons are actually play and then a space and then theatrical version but if you just yep. hit play mm-hmm. it plays the special edition well yeah. anyway so it's it, it exists I want to say one more thing about special editions and yes. and how I generally abhor them. And in almost all cases, the theatrical is almost always better. Um, and special editions are a chance for a director to revisit their work and usually to the work's detriment. Um, to me, the reference standard, uh, well, we all know what the real reference standard trilogy is, but um, <laughs> like the, the Donnie Darko uh, director's cut or... Um, uh, what else is coming to mind? The many, uh, so sometimes it it doesn't work. Like uh, E.T. Special Edition and Close Encounter Special Edition are arguably make the movies worse. And in most of those, in those latter two cases, um, 
the director has gone back and said, you know what? Those special editions were pretty much a mistake. So what I want to commend Cameron for is uh, being uh, to say, okay, I made a special edition after the success of Terminator 2. I was able to go back to the abyss and create a special edition of the abyss. And every step of the way, the theatrical and special edition have lived in parallel with each other. They have gone on the same path. And even though it took forever for this HD version to finally get released, um, you know, in this day and age, he must, he and Fox and whoever now Disney need to be applauded that they are considered to be, I mean, they, they, they have moved into the future in parallel and that is something that other filmmakers and other studios might want to take a lesson uh, and take a little something from. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Absolutely. I don't know who those would be, but yeah, just in general. <laughs> just in general. I, should, I have one more uh, VFX shot uh, question for Todd. And maybe this was just my iTunes glitching out or something. But the scene where the big uh, ship comes up and has the like the Benthic Explorer on top the, of it. The wide you know, shot. Is the that, big wide it looked shot. like it was 640 by 480. Okay. <laughs> no, that I I'm almost po- okay. So when you're filming water, there's a lot of miniature water in this movie, and for splashes and everything, it is very hard. I mean, water miniaturizes extremely quickly, so you have to have these gigantic miniatures, haha. Um, and you have to shoot at a high frame rate, and that um that messes with your uh, depth of field. So that shot, I, I'm almost positive that's not even an optical. I think that is a that's purely a in-camera shot. Yeah, it is a it miniature. Look, it looked low res, though. It that's- is not only shot at a high frame rate, so the registration, it might be slightly off, which gives it that like almost second generation uh, feel, mm. but it is uh, slightly out of focus. And I'm, not, I'm actually not entirely sure that that was intentional or unintentional to help with scale, um, but the specular highlights are very bloomy and it uh, it's uh, it's it's out of focus look it was in, it, it, was it, it, it looks off yeah I, it was I, in, I mean, in, in my recollection it, uh, this 4k version it looked worse than it did in when i watched <laughs> it on hbo like a year ago like the hbo one is also hd right yeah i think the hbo one is hd that's that that's that previous yeah, but it was, sometimes it's about it's about the uh <laughs> contrast right <laughs> like oh no yeah, because you were watching the rest of it, it was crisp, and then this yeah. is really soft. Yeah, it was, but it, it really stuck out to me. And it's like, oh, they couldn't, they couldn't, like, I don't know. There, 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 there was something there. Uh, <laughs> as far as I understand, there are no digital composites in this movie, so that has nothing to do with like the film being scanned or hmm. done at a even the yeah, digital like, they shots. Couldn't have, like AI upresed it or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, but you know, that's a slippery slope. Uh, just look yeah. at the True Lies uh, uh, 4K. Um, but even those digital shots of the, um, the 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 computer graphics pseudopod. Those were printed to film and then optically composited on film. Mm. There was yeah. no digital compositing yeah. uh, at the time. So, yeah. Well, anything else before we go about the abyss that we should talk about? Now is your chance. I just want to say that this movie, in a way, was just made for a movie viewer like me. Like, if you have gotten to the end of this this podcast and you haven't, for some reason, seen the abyss yet, oh and God. you tend to agree with me on movies, you should 
absolutely, absolutely check this movie out, whichever version you decide you want. But if you're like me, you should watch the special edition. Uh, but like it's it's a base under siege kind of a story mm-hmm. with a mystery that turns out to be aliens that want to save us from ourselves. There's amazing character development. There's the sort of anti-war military establishment as the antagonist threaded throughout it. Like, you know, Annette hates subs, but if you listen to the Incomparable Book Club <laughs> podcast, you know that I don't like stuff about the ocean. <laughs> I just don't like books about the ocean. And I still don't. James Cameron has not won me over with his love for the ocean. I just don't care about it. 70% of the earth, Eric. And yet I love this movie. So, you know, Annette hates subs. Uh, John hates dubs. (laughs) So now we've learned uh, lots of things about about movies here. Yeah, I mean, revealed all our weaknesses. If I didn't make it clear before, this is a not as well known as it should be Mm -hmm. classic movie. It's got action and suspense and wonder and good character stuff. And it is a crying shame that it wasn't an enormous hit. And before we got started, Todd and I were talking about how so much um, cynical movie coverage is about how well a movie did at the box office, which has mm-hmm. nothing to do with judging art. It And unless you're an investor, you shouldn't <laughs> care about how much money it made. And The Abyss didn't make very much money. And as a result, I feel like people don't remember it. And it's ridiculous. This is, first off, do we remember Terminator? Terminator 2? Titanic? Mm -hmm. I mean, like uh, Avatar? James Cameron movies? Well, he made another movie that is, I think, his best movie. And it didn't make a lot of money in 1989. And so people don't think about it. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, you absolutely should see this movie. Because as I said... There's so much in it. You like you cannot believe how much is packed. Even if you watch the the shorter version that was the theatrical version, like like how Aliens is relentless. This movie is kind of relentless, like that, yeah. with that all the kind of like character moments that you get in it as well. It's really a remarkable film, and I, I it baffles me that uh, bad box office in the summer of 1989 means we can't ever really talk about this movie as one of the greats hmm. i don't i don't get it i don't get it i mean yeah we I can't mean, have good things yeah so it, it's also like such a james cameron movie in oh, yeah. a good way where the thing i enjoy is like underneath all of the things you both have said is that you can tell he is such an ocean nerd. Oh yeah. And yeah. that all of those details and how he's constructed the like the appearance of this, the technology of it, everything is, it feels so grounded in reality and technology that, but without overtaking the story, right? So it's all sitting and brewing in the background without it being like, look how much I know about the ocean. <laughs> so I, I enjoy that part of it too. Yeah. I mean, just for, for like, if you've enjoyed, like I would say to somebody who's never even heard of the abyss, like if you enjoyed Aliens and Terminator and Terminator 2 and Titanic, uh, you got to give this a shot because uh-huh. this is right. I mean, these should be the abyss should be said right along with those other films. Yeah. And particularly his obsession. I don't even know about love of water. I mean, he clearly is obsessed with water, but it is also a the source of terror for so many of his characters. Uh, in the abyss, obviously Titanic, and then it came back hard in Avatar Two, where water was again not only a source of beauty and wonder, 
but um, you've got a lot of Abyss-style uh, near drownings and uh, uh, claustrophobic environments and the water just coming in and about to kill our, our main characters. Um, he's got a very complicated relationship with water. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just so happy with this restoration and, uh, digital and physical release that it can actually, you know, again, enter the conversation of, you know, these great movies, these pivotal movies, not only just of, uh, of visual effects, but of, of action filmmaking. Mm. I've always felt that was kind of a shame that, uh, there are so many sort of underwater movies. I think we named three. it was the, the Leviathan Deep Star Six. There's so many other ones that I've watched since then. They tend to, I, was, I like that genre. I wish it had become as common a genre as all the other types of movies that we have, but it hasn't. But they do exist and they tend to be lower budget, lesser known, not particularly well made, often have a horror angle on them. Mm. Uh, but there's one that's a James Cameron movie. And it yep. stands out so far head and shoulders above <laughs> all those other ones. And I love this genre. I love people underwater in a current or near future situation and like tell stories in that environment. It's just like I love space movies and, you know, movies in the Old West or whatever. Right. It's just it's just a shame that like apparently the only movies we can make there are low budget slash horror thing. But I, I do really appreciate that one of our best filmmakers made a movie in that environment to show everybody else how it's done. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's in the can. I don't even know what to do. What what, what will we even th- think of to talk about next week on the incomparable? I've checked the last item off my list. Oh, I got more. Oh, no. There's more things on the list. <laughs> the Jason, list. now I'm I'm tense for a different reason. The now. list goes on. Now we're we're all just when you think about it, we're all just inside a, a underwater deep sea ocean ring. No, that doesn't really make any sense. Okay, we've reached the end. It's a great movie. I'm so happy that I got to talk about it with these wonderful people. Annette Weirstra, who liked it, even though it's got a submarine in it. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for letting me into the ocean with you. You are more than there's aliens in here. Watch out. Uh, (laughs) Eric Ansai, thank you. Thank you. I am going to go enjoy either weed, whites, or wine. I'll leave which as an exercise for the listeners. (laughs) John Syracuse, thank you. I think I'll watch anything where Ed Harris wears a suit that has a helmet. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. And Todd Vaziri, thank you so much for being on The Incomparable for the first time. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. I feel like I'm standing on a mountaintop, but you know, I got to start down and we'll see you next week.